Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this, another edition of the Underdog Football Show. My name is Josh Norris. His name is Hayden Winks. I'm still on the road. Hayden's still in sunny California because he doesn't have to go anywhere to make things more beautiful, to make things happier, to be closer to family. How was week 16 for you, Hayden? It was good. I liked how their Saturday games kind of makes the Sunday not so overwhelming. And then I like doing the show on the Monday mornings, too. So hopefully the numbers are good so we can keep doing it. Yes, I love it too. We get to uh, review, react, write down notes, be more prepared. What I loved was all the guys, many of them that we touted were in line for fantastic weeks. The likes of Damian Harris, your Justin Jackson, Alexander Madison. We can keep going on and on and on. In fact, we'll end today's show with a bunch of the 50X pick'em slips that you sent us. And I'm so glad the boost, the first time we ever did it, worked out for all of you. Okay. Today, 10, 10 key takeaways from week 16. After reviewing the performances, what changed for a bunch of these teams who are about to contend for a championship head on over into the playoffs? Because while we've watched so many games of each of these teams, things are still changing. They're still evolving. And some teams are better off right now than they were a couple weeks ago. Hayden, why don't you get us started off? So Joe Burrow became the third quarterback to have at least 525 yards and four touchdowns, and they pass on the last drive to make sure that they can do that, but that was a little bit of a revenge thing after the Ravens had tried to get that 100-yard rushing bonus for, like, I mean, like a couple seasons in a row. So this is a little bit of payback there. i really like to see that. But the reason why it was so successful was, I mean, entering in this game, Joe Burrow was first in yards per attempt against cover zero, cover one, cover three, and cover two man, all the way at 10.1 yards per attempt against cover two, cover four, and cover six, that he's all the way down to 15th among quarterbacks. And the reason why is because those first coverages, and those are the coverages that the rant or the, the uh, Ravens typically run, it's just like, is my guy better than your guy? Yep. And the moral of the story for the Bengals right now is, their, their guys are better than your guys. T. Higgins was an absolute alpha. Uh, Jamar Chase was an absolute alpha. Tyler Boyd got loose on a, a cover one play on a little out and up. Uh, and then even Joe Mixon won a couple isolated routes out of the backfield too. So right now we have a situation where the Bengals, if they choose to, could just say, we're going to pass the ball all over the yard. And the way that Joe Burrow's playing, it's going to be effective. And it was interesting this week it did seem like the Bengals really did pass the ball more in neutral situations. And to me, that's playing to their strengths. We've talked about Zach Taylor, how we wish he would just stop running the ball so much, and especially into the heavy boxes. Like right now, uh, they're running the ball with seven-plus defenders in the box at the fourth-highest rate in the NFL. And on those looks, they're averaging 3.8 yards per carry and 8.9 yards per attempt against those heavy boxes. So why not mm. just like throw the ball over the yard? Because you have T. Higgins, who is not even just winning jump ball situations anymore, winning on slants and all these other things. So I, I hope that they just say, screw it. We're going to be a pass-heavy team all of a sudden, and that's the dangerous team in the playoffs. And it's not because of our observations and our evaluations of Joe Mixon either. Like We think Joe Mixon is a, a phenomenal talent, a potential top-10 talent out there. Uh, but getting him 18 carries for, for 65 yards, that's the perfect amount, especially when he has a knee injury, especially he has an ankle injury. And you mentioned it, 46 attempts this time for Joe Burrow, very similar numbers in terms of yardage the first time these two teams faced off. In fact, our friend Greg Rosenthal pointed this out. Joe Burrow put up the most yards versus one opponent in the NFL history this season. Over 900 combined yards, 941 yards versus the Baltimore Ravens. The Bengals put up 240 burgers against the Bengals, excuse me, against the Ravens this season. And 
I guess the question is just why. And we did a really good job, I think, highlighting this potential heading into this game because when you went back and watched that contest against the Bengals, uh, excuse me, against the Ravens previously, where Jamar Chase was breaking tackles and making these happen down the field, and he was the superstar. He's the one who went over for 200. It's so many even more injuries on top of that, but the, the Ravens this season have just been so bad at tackling and giving up explosive plays. And I know it sounds so simple, but in reality, Hayden, a lot of the coverages this season have been simple to stop performances like this. So is it a matchup where we can say, hey, if the Bengals are expecting, as you alluded to, cover three, cover one, cover zero, those are the contests that they should lean heavily into the passing game? Because on some level, right now, they're not in their perfect form. You know, they can improve their offensive line. They can have a healthier running back. But they're also suited to beat up on teams that do go cover two and two highs as well. Yeah, because Joe Mixon's such an effective runner. So, like, they can do both. They're just, like, trying to find what is the right balance. And I think to start the season, maybe because it was Joe Burrow's knee in the middle parts of the season especially, they were running the ball just so often into these heavy looks. And that was, like, my only thing. Like, if it's six defenders in the box and you want to run the ball with Joe Mixon – Go for it. That's fine with me. It was always just so frustrating when they'd bring in another tight end and then just like run the ball on first and 10 when there's like seven or eight dudes right next to him. Like I didn't like those type of plays, but I think like that's the ceiling is a little bit higher than I expected just because if they want to flip the script on these teams, they can start doing it. And the other thing is Joe Mixon actually was a full-time player basically in this game. He played 82% of the snaps, ran around on 64% of the dropbacks. That's up a little bit. And I think Joe Mixon could win out in space as a receiver, too. I mean, he won on the – I clipped it, just cover one and just beat him downfield. And then he had another where he – it was a check down. He had to run past a linebacker for for a touchdown. So I think that's how they should use him. There's going to be some times where Joe Mixon has to get involved early, and it's a good thing that they can do that. And Mixon has been such a good running back this year. But I, I really like their matchups when it's just like one-on-one, time to go deep. Yeah, And the splits are really starting to get wider and wider and wider. And I really just think it's because you have two alpha receivers on the outside, Jamar Chase and T. Higgins, and even Tyler Boyd could beat man coverage on the inside himself. We love getting into the finer details of why things succeeded and why in this matchup it did versus others. You've done a great job outlining the specific coverages. But Andrew Russell of PFF pointed this out of why Jamar Chase's day might have been different in his usage versus others. I mean, Chase only had 80 slot snaps coming into this game, which is an average of 5.3 per game with just 12 targets. Obviously, that's that's less than one per contest. So here in week 16 against these Ravens, he had 12 slot snaps, three targets, three receptions for 57 yards, average over 14 yards after the catch in those opportunities. Just leaning into the Ravens' inability to make tackles. And it was exactly what happened. In their, in their first go-round, too. So I love this little wrinkle from Zach Taylor. While we pointed out from a big-picture, high level, that this Bengals passing attack, if they leaned into it, was going to have plenty of success against the Ravens. But then taking it up a little notch and changing the alignments and changing the uses just a little bit made that even more so. So I think one of the reasons why he went to the slot a little bit more is the Ravens were playing a lot of single high, and they would put Jamar Chase on the T. Higgins side and basically, that that single high safety has to go to that side of the field. And this Tyler Boyd play was the perfect example of this. Uh, Tyler Boyd's on the other side of the formation. The single high safety goes to the top where those two receivers are. And on this out and up, there is no safety over the top. So once Tyler Boyd beats him by one step, it's a huge play. So these are like the boom bust type of coverage that the Ravens could do when they have the elite players. They have yeah. both their safeties and they have their number one and the number two and their number three and their, even their number four corners available they can do that but once you have backups in it's it's a totally different ball game so um the good news is we're gonna have the Bengals in the playoffs they have an 80 percent chance of making the playoffs 73 percent chance of winning the afc north this team is a little bit dangerous and i think for nfl playoffs best ball in underdog fantasy they should be drafted much higher than what they've been drafted nice love that and that, that play really reminded me of like what C.J. Uzoma did in that first contest against the Ravens, who in terms of big plays, just wide open over the middle of the field. And so much of that just comes from the route concepts and, and alignments. Okay, move on to the Bengals. 
Let's go on all the way back to, to Thursday. Feels like a long time ago. The Titans beating the 49ers 20 to 17. And the headliner here was A.J. Brown's return to the lineup. He ends the day with 11 receptions, 145 yards, and one touchdown. We talked about it endlessly with this Titans team. While they were number two or number three in the AFC playoff race for a very, very long time, with the Colts really almost biting at their heels closer and closer, we've been waiting for an injection of offense because, especially in the passing game, it was stagnant. And it's kind of tough to blame Ryan Tannehill at large because of all the pieces he's missing there, offensive linemen they're missing, throwing to absolute nobody's fringe roster talents. And that was so readily apparent with as soon as A.J. Brown returns back to full health, he changes the entire complexion and success of, of this team and, and this game and, and what their future can be. And he didn't even have a catch in the entire first quarter. A.J. Brown won 11, 145, and one score with his first catch coming with 7.30 left in the second quarter, already down 10 to nothing. So then you go second and 14, gain of 12. The next catch, third and three conversion. Those third downs, this was the chain mover difference maker that the Titans have been missing, especially without Derrick Henry, and A.J. Brown brought it. I mean, there was a span of five straight third down conversions that he made. Third and seven versus Fred Warner when San Francisco blitzed. Third and 10, which was just three plays later. Third and 23 when San Francisco jumped off sides. It was a one-on-one high point situation. No one else in that roster can make it, and he made it against Avery Thomas. Then third and 10 roll out to the left with the immediate pressure, and boom, he makes the catch. So we talk about Alpha's game-changing players that alter the courses of seasons. With A.J. Brown, it might not be enough, you know, without a Julio Jones and obviously without Derrick Henry, but this at least makes the Titans a little feistier, and credit to Mike Vrabel for always being prepared for these short week contests. Yeah, it was a fantastic upset. I have the Sports Info Solutions on off splits with A.J. Brown. Ryan Tannehill has uh, just over 2,100 yards when uh, A.J. Brown is on the field. When A.J. Brown's off the field, that's over or down all the way to 1,200 yards, and that's almost on the same amount of pass attempts. So it's like light and day, and I just think it's just the reason why they can get kind of frisky in the playoffs yeah. and – it makes the Julio Jones basically goose egg this entire season. Not as big of a deal because A.J. Brown is just so damn good. He's so physical. He was running those crossing routes and literally just like grabbing the corner and just throwing him uh, into amazing. the second row. And they weren't calling it, and he just kept getting away with it. But I don't know what you're supposed to do. He's just one of the most physical players in the league, and he also has the ability to run off a, a huge one after the catch. So he's in that elite, elite tier, and it's hopefully his hamstring and everything else could hold up down the stretch because I don't think they're going to get too much out of Julio Jones at this point. Right. Whenever you bring up and show that third and 10 conversion, which was his last of the game, and it shows that he did basically throw that defensive back to the ground, everyone just says OPI, OPI. What we have learned this season is and free plays and much more often wide receivers, if you have that physical talents, hey, push off. We're yep. going to talk about it a little bit later on. Push off, create separation, force the refs to make a tough call rather than you not being able to make the catch because of, of tight coverage. And in that play, it overlooks the fact that Ryan Tannehill, because San Francisco sent two, I feel like Tannehill just had more confidence in this game too because of A.J. Brown's presence on the field. So he's able to evade, roll to his left, make a cross-body throw, which is very difficult to do, and then Brown picks up an extra three yards there. And then the very next play, that first and 10 dagger needle through the heart of the 49ers defense, 18 yard strike he had to, uh, to AJ Brown. And just in comparison to the rest of the team, again, 145 yards for AJ Brown, Westbrook, Akine, 38 yards, Ferkser, 13 yards, Swain, 10 yards, Julio, seven, Chester Rogers, three, no one else had positive yardage in the passing game, 145 of the 209, again, this is a obviously game-altering player, potentially season-altering player they get back. They're not at their best, but I also want to shout out, again, Mike Vrabel for what he does. Cleve TA always points this out. On short weeks as a home underdog, Mike Vrabel is incredible against the spread. Insane against the spread. I'm not sure from behind closed doors what he is doing with the Titans, but it is it is so impressive how 
without so many bodies and so many of their best players and their identity, that they're able to come back and, and beat a team that we did call feisty in the past in the 49ers. Yep, right now looking at the playoff picture, they have a 50% chance of being the number two seed, a uh, third of the chance to have the number one seed. So they're going to be the, the number one or the number two, and that means that they're not going to face the Bills or the Chiefs until a little bit later into the, the playoff push. So once again, one of these teams at an NFL playoffs best ball, A.J. Brown, probably should be getting drafted a little bit higher uh, than where he's being drafted currently. And it was such a good job by the Titans – putting a spotlight on the worst aspect of what the 49ers have out there. It's Josh Norman on one side and Kwan Williams. If you could pull up and I probably should have AJ Brown's route chart. It was absolutely, it was so much of it was on the left side and taking advantage of the gaps in between those players. And then on third downs, when they basically do go cover three or, or man coverage, then he's just roasting whoever is, is one-on-one with him. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Okay. Two teams there in the AFC. Let's go to one more. We have to talk about Josh Allen. He was simply sensational in the Bills' victory over the New England Patriots. Yeah, with the win, they have an 89% chance to win the AFC East. They only have the Falcons and Jets left. So they're probably going to end the season with, like, what, 12, 13 wins, which is kind of in line with what we were thinking that they were going to be coming in. What was so impressive about this game was it was not like the classic Josh Allen bombs away it was not like a bunch of man coverage and just deep shots. This was like a new wrinkle, uh, Josh Allen, where a lot of the production was coming off of either broken plays, designed runs, or just hitting the Devin Singletary check down. Like the first half of the game, they played a lot of the Patriots played a lot of zone defense, and Devin Singletary just kept checking the ball down. I think that's like a little bit of a credit to Josh Allen. I think like the early stages of Josh Allen would just keep trying to rip it downfield against those. But now we're getting like the seven, eight yard play to the running back underneath. So I thought that was really critical here. But obviously the big, big stuff was at the very end of the game. Uh, we had a fourth and two call or fourth and one call where uh, Josh Allen gets out of the pocket uh, and picks up the first down. A couple plays later, he's scrambling around and he kind of throws the ball like a second baseman's turning two underhand to his right to Steph Diggs, who makes a bunch of uh, broken plays for a first down. And then to score the game-winning touchdown near the goal line, this was also a little bit of a, a, a broken play where he's flicking it over to Dawson Knox here too. So it's these type of plays where you don't really teach it. This wasn't about scheme or anything like that. This no. was just him being the best player on the field. And I think just big picture stuff, you either have one of these quarterbacks or you don't. Right. Like you either have like a, a 38-year-old <laughs> quarterback that's seen everything that's also six foot four and can throw the ball like a Tom Brady or Aaron Aaron Rodgers. Or you have one of these one young guys that can make all these plays out of structure. And until you have one of those two types of quarterbacks, you're out of here. So this was just the difference between the Patriots and the Bills. I think the Patriots are a good good team. They still need speed. That was so obvious. I want to talk about another player in the Bills that brought some speed. But really, this game was just Josh Allen was just simply easily the best player on the field. And that came through on that last drive. I made the joke. But Josh Allen, if he travels and typically his brain travels less than 50 miles per hour, he's going to explode because he's a pedal to the floor player. And he's been that way his entire career. Last year, it was incredible. It ran hot. This year, it's been off and on at times. And the whole league has been, you know, a bit of a roller coaster with that. But what we got here was him running pure. And it doesn't look as beautiful as like when Tom Brady runs pure, another guy who can like separate his team and elevate everyone around him because it's like controlled chaos with, with Josh Allen. And before he had the season last year, it's kind of why I fell in love with his game because if you're looking for the perfect player who hits his back foot in perfect timing, delivers it to the open receiver, exactly how the OC draws it up, you're not going to love Josh Allen. Like that's just not his game. But can he do things on the NFL field that few have in the last 10, 20 years? Yes. If you set him up for one-on-one situations, whether it be a linebacker crashing, defensive lineman, a cornerback, he's going to win that one-on-one because of his arm, because of his athleticism. And one final point, what the Bills overcame with their lack of playmakers out there That wasn't talked about when he was going up and and putting up these numbers without Cole Beasley, without Gabriel Davis, massive shifts 
along the offensive line when your right tackle had to move to left tackle and Spencer Brown, how Darrell Williams started right tackle and had to move into guard. Then they, you know, lose their left guard after 20 snaps. So Deion Dawkins just off the cover list as a step back in at left tackle. This was not a perfect team to go out there to beat, we you know, a player that and a team that their head coach and Sean McDermott has put so many eggs in the basket of, of conquering, and they did it. They did it with flying colors. A new element that we had not seen was Isaiah McKenzie, and he was winning against man coverage, and it was basically a lot of just crossing routes, shallow drags, those type of routes where Josh Allen is buying time. Isaiah McKenzie was not the first read on these, but with, with Josh Allen moving around the pocket, that's where the speed for the receivers really starts to show up. And I think it might be like, I liked the speed elements hmm. and I was like kind of wondering like, okay, if, if you know, you're going to get a lot of man defense, why not start Isaiah McKenzie over Cole Beasley? Cole Beasley has not been the same player this year. Cole Beasley is not going to be making the type of plays that I'm showing right here, where it's just scramble, 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 and then come back to the ball. That was what Isaiah McKenzie was doing, and I really liked that element. I thought he was more of a low-volume gadget, McCole Hardman type. I think he's a little bit more than that. And I think also Emmanuel Sanders has been struggling so much for multiple months now. He had a couple bad drops here. He didn't really do anything in the game that they needed him. Like I'm almost at the point of like, why not Gabe Davis and Isaiah McKenzie in the starting lineup when everyone's healthy? Like I know it sounds crazy because they have so much money invested in the other veterans, but these other two guys just look healthier and faster and i really liked what isaiah mckenzie was able to provide yeah and all those crossing routes like that's so much of that is just looking for steph Diggs. a steph Diggs is getting bra bracket coverage all of a sudden uh josh allen buys time and then isaiah mckenzie is open so really interesting element um but i would be curious to see if they kind of stick with him because i think he's probably a couple seconds faster than Cole Beasley in like a hundred yard dash. That would be so insane for a head coach to use different wide receiver personnel based on if they're playing man coverage teams heavy or zone coverage teams heavy. Right. But almost the bills have, have that personnel to do it. Yeah. I mean, all these crossing routes are man beaters, you know, it's yep. extended play beaters. And when you have a quarterback who lives to play on extended downs outside of structure, boom, why not? Why not? It makes so yeah, much I mean, sense. And it highlights a little bit of a deficiency. Sorry to cut you off on where the Patriots and, and we love the Patriots this year because like they are following through with their identity. But one, the pass rush isn't getting us home as much as it did earlier in the season. And two, they've lacked speed throughout the entire year and especially at linebacker. And when you have slow linebackers, you have a slow defense at times and you can't have a slow defense against against Josh Allen. And like we're talking about Isaiah McKenzie over the middle of the field. Yeah, I think if you took the 40 times of the starters on both sides of the ball, I would bet big money that the Patriots would be the slowest team in the league. And that was just a little bit of the difference here. And <clears throat> going back to just like Gabe Davis and, and Isaiah McKenzie, like that would be like a big body receiver, a speedster, plus like yeah. your classic Stefan Diggs. Like I like that like little element rather than like Emmanuel, Cole Beasley, Steph Diggs. Like it's like kind of, I don't know. It's like all undersized players. I don't really like that setup. So um, we'll see what happens uh, in the next couple of weeks here. Let's stay on this team, but look at it from a zoomed out perspective with the rest of the league, because one reason why the bills were so successful in this game is because they converted three of four fourth down attempts. And in fact, all three of those either led directly to a touchdown or, or led and finished off that drive. For a touchdown. I mean, fourth and two on the three, the first drive of the game, touchdown. Another fourth and goal after that, bounced off Emmanuel Sanders' hands at 10 to seven. Same 10 7 score. They went for and fourth and two at the 34 yard line after drawing New England off to make it from, a, again, fourth and seven to a fourth and two. The play was designed for Emmanuel Sanders. That was completely covered because the cornerback sat inside. So Josh Allen stays a little patient, moves his feet a little erratically, then hits, you know, Stefan Diggs on the backside. Again, that drive led. To a touchdown. Then the fourth quarter. Let's fast forward a couple minutes. 4.30 to go. You, I think you pointed out this play. Up 26 to 21 on the 34 again. Fourth and inches. I swear the play is supposed to be a handoff to the right side. But Josh Allen says, you know what? I'm going to take this one myself. He takes it on a naked boot. 
And I, I, I say that it's supposed to be a run to the right side because Deion Dawkins just allows his man to get outside leverage in Jamie Collins. Allen runs around him. Stefan Diggs has no clue he's supposed to block in this play. JC Jackson flies past him. And Allen makes both miss in the backfield to go and convert the first down. And that ends in the game-winning touchdown drive. So while that microcosm of making it on three and four, and by the way, the Patriots with Bill Belichick being so averse to going for in fourth down situations this season, they went five for six in fourth down attempts in this game. At large, the winning teams in week 16 converted 68% of their fourth downs. You're not going to hear about that on talk radio, on morning talk shows this week, because it worked over two thirds of the time. When winning teams went for fourth down attempts, 15 of 22, they were successful. And in so many cases, for the Bills, for the Bengals, heck, even for the Jets, it paid massive dividends because so many of those drives or plays led directly to a touchdown or ended in a touchdown. Yeah, and as fans, we better get used to this because the fourth down stuff is only going to get more and more and more and more involved as the seasons go on. All the aggressive teams are going to keep winning and all of the conservative teams are going to have to start going for it. So a lot of these games are going to come down to fourth downs and two-point conversions, and it's like really, I think personally, I love watching those types of games, and I like the aggressiveness. But yeah, this is very important to note because it never gets talked about when it's working. People like change when you're uh, changing things and it's wrong. That's when you get the headlines. But when it's changing and it's going right, you don't really take notice. So this is uh, pretty important to keep in keep as a reminder, when like the Ravens and the Chargers, right, it doesn't go right for them. A lot of the times it's going unnoticed um, in other stadiums. And that's why I want to point it out when it does go right, because it's so easy, especially in, in spotlight games to say, oh, why? Why did Brandon Staley make those decisions? And do you and I agree with every single one of those decisions? Probably not like the one for half. Again, we keep talking about it. I would have taken the field goal there. But I almost want to highlight them as we go along when they're working like the Chargers against the Browns, like the Chargers in other games. So we can then reflectively say like, hey, well, you can't have me when we go for 10 and two and six conversions when we went four for four, we won the game. Right. You know, it's it's so much easier. It's like drops. It's so much easier to pinpoint those and highlight those rather than the rest. And uh, when everything's actually, actually working. I mean, the Bengals, the Bengals did it. Fourth and one. Joe Mixon handoff went down 10 to three and then boom off the races for, for the rest of the game. So much conversation. And I think they're two almost different topics of when to go for two and why to go for two. To me, the bigger topic is fourth down aggression. And we need to get used to fourth down aggression because it should, it 100% should be here to stay because the difference of four points and four point plays of selling for a field goal or even short punts, which we see, Matt freaking rule and everyone else do across the league rather than going for it in those scenarios and converting. Those are game defining game changing drives. And I'm so glad we're seeing them more and more often. Yeah. And if you're just like looking at the models, like the two point conversion calls, usually it's like a point or two in winning percentage change, depending on that. But some of these, if you look at like the punt, if the team decides to punt, they're forfeiting like four, five, six percent of the in-game winning percentage by doing that. So I, I I'm with you. It's the fourth down aggressiveness is is the big thing the two-point conversion all the game theory stuff like we're like really settling over a half percentage point the fourth down stuff that's where the big differences lie and there's more of them over the course uh of a of a game the bills didn't punt the ball like we didn't talk about that like that's i mean they did not punt the ball partially because they they went for this but partially because it was just like all these drives were so methodical like there was not like a 70 yard touchdown it was a bunch of just like Devin Singletary, check down, scramble here, all that stuff. And it just kept adding up and they didn't end up punting the ball pretty crazy. And in a game where Bill Belichick knew the opposition wasn't punting the ball, he saw them going for these fourth down attempts. Again, a head coach who this season, maybe because he has a rookie quarterback, maybe because they've been finding their identity throughout the season, has been very averse for going for it in those fourth down scenarios, had the highest number this week, five for six. They went for them. That tells you something. Yep. That tells you something. Uh, should we close out this AFC conversation, Hayden, with the AFC wildcard? Let's do it. So they, basically there's six teams that are in. You have the Chiefs, you have the Bills, the Titans, the Bengals, the Colts, and the Patriots are in. There's the final spot right now, 538, and a lot of the other models 
have the Chargers with around a 36% chance, the Ravens at a 35% chance, and then you get into your Raiders, Dolphins, Steelers, and Browns. But I want to talk about the Chargers in particular because they really absolutely tanked uh, against the Texans here. And of course, they had their number two receiver, their number three receiver. They had their center out. They had a bunch of players on the defense. And I think the the defense side was the bigger part because the offense still came into play. Justin Herbert was incredible. Outside of the fumble from Justin Jackson, uh, he looked really good too. So they got enough production from the offense. It was the defense that was the problem. And a couple injuries, obviously the big one was out without having Joey Bosa, but they also were missing their defensive tackle, Justin Jones. And Derwin James didn't play. And Derwin James' replacement, I mean, number 32, it was one of the worst defensive games I, I could remember. Like, I, I, I hate saying that, but it, it was true. It was one of the worst. And so many of those big rushes that Rex Burkhead had were because of, of him. But I think just big picture, looking at the Chargers, like right now, their personnel isn't good enough to run the defense that Brandon Staley wants to run being light in the box right now. They're top four in a uh, too high shell rate against 11 personnel and against 12 and 21 personnel. So it doesn't really matter. They are going to be lighter than most teams, but they don't have a, a defensive tackle. They don't have linebackers. They don't have the edge depth. Like some of like uh, uh Nuosu is like pretty undersized for an edge rusher. So they just don't have enough bodies right now. And that's why they're getting absolutely crushed. 31st in EPA against the run. That's why Rex Burkhead went crazy. And it's so sad to see because the Chargers two years ago drafted a defensive tackle, Jerry Tillery, in the first round. And last year, they traded up to draft Kenneth Murray, a linebacker, supposed to be an off-ball inside linebacker. And he's been so bad against the run that he's been moved to edge. He's He's an outside linebacker because he can't stop the run. So right now... The Chargers are in a situation where they just simply do not have the personnel and teams are going to be able to run it against them as they have the entire year. So whoever the best defensive tackle in the draft is or whoever's the biggest defensive tackle in free agency, you can almost guarantee that they're going to go the Chargers way because Brandon Staley does not have, in one offseason, did not have enough time to assemble a defense that is reflective of what he actually wants to run. This is something we've talked about a lot this year where – they were abysmal against the run. And I think part of it is, as you're alluding to, scheme, mindset, game plan of the head coach. And it's what's gotten him into the, this position, you know, learning so closely underneath Vic Fangio for just a small period of time after, you know, coming out of John Carroll and a small, small town college, right? I believe I'm just making that up off the top of my head. And then graduating so quickly to a head coaching gig. And if we look back at the Rams' success last year under Brandon Staley, that's a team of superstars. That's a team of like some of the top two talents in the NFL, regardless of position, in Jalen Ramsey and in Aaron Donald. And you have others. You have others there too. Now, did their success as a whole, because he made them better than what Wade Phillips does. There was nothing really wrong with what Wade Phillips was doing as a defensive coordinator but I think Sean McVay knew that, hey, we got to take it up a notch. We got to take it up a level. And so he brings in Brandon Staley, who, again, just one season as a DC, then makes it into the head coaching gig. So your point on superstars not being out there, I think what Staley's defense highlights is, hey, we're going to be pretty simple here, but we're going to need our superstars to, to make plays, game-changing plays, game-altering plays, and that's going to be the difference for us. I will also counter that, though, with if you're this bad against the run and Rex freaking Burkhead is torching you, should you have a counter? Should you be able to change something on the fly? Because I'm of the opinion that Brandon Staley is awesome, and it's so difficult to judge someone 15 games into their NFL career and like make lasting five- or six-year declarations on them. But just from a mindset and aggression standpoint – I'm very much buying into the Chargers underneath him versus what we've seen with their head coach over the last, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah, just like, what do you do do if you know you don't have the personnel, but you want to run this scheme because it's the best scheme there is? Would you rather teach the players currently on your roster in year one, all right, this is how we're going to do it. We might get gashed, but at least we're going to learn for next year. Or you can completely throw out the scheme that you were hired to, to contribute to and change it up a little bit. And then there's a couple of plays where they had like multiple defensive uh, tackles in the backfield 
and Rex Burkhead just juked him out. And that's just because they it was all backups. Like, literally the entire front seven was backup. And if you watch this game, what this defense, because they're always in too high, they're asking their defensive backs to come in and kind of fill that last gap. And they come in a little bit late. These defensive backs were coming in so slow, so hesitant. They were so late that, like, when they were making contact, they were making contact like six, seven yards. And that is a flaw to the scheme. But this is a scheme that's like saying, okay, we're going to live if you can kind of have six, seven yard carries, but we are not going to give up the 44 yard uh, long uh, pass over the top of us. Right. They just they just need another body. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge him until he has another offseason. I'm very curious to see what he's gonna do. But I think that the off the offense is set. The offensive line, when they're fully healthy, is good. Their skill group is definitely good. Obviously, with Justin Herbert, I think it's gonna be a situation where the Chargers just look and say, We need defensive tackles, we need uh uh linebackers, we need uh safeties, like a, another safety, and it's gonna be a very unsexy offseason, but I think that we might see a huge uh, increase next year so i don't want to chop off staley's head right too early um and the well, offense is still beautiful right now sean mcdermott loss to the jacksonville jaguars like we've had some crazy victories by awful teams over good teams this season quick devil's advocate we saw the chiefs defense this year start off unbelievably bad in both phases they've rounded into form they've taken shape the Green Bay Packers were bad in a lot of phases. They've improved. They've gotten a lot better. I could bring up one or two more since then that you can say the exact same thing about. It kind of though feels like the Chargers have been the Chargers all season long, especially in this yeah. one area. Yeah, I mean, who are their good front seven players outside of Bosa? Like, yeah. it's, I think it's as simple as that. Like, they need dogs like up front because they're so light in the box. If you don't have dogs, like this is what's going to happen to you. So, um, Hopefully they get like Jordan Davis, like that big Georgia guy. Like I haven't watched enough of these prospects yet, but like somebody that's like six foot six, 325 pounds would do wonders here. Antonio Brown is back in our lives for uh, worse for us watching his press conference, but for better for Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 10 receptions for 101 yards on the heels of Leonard Fournette missing two or three games. Mike Evans missing two-ish games and Chris Godwin going on injured reserve. And so we knew that the Panthers defense, great pass rushers, lots of depth at corner. Maybe this would be a game for Ronald Jones, heck, even Keyshawn Vaughn to go off. They definitely got theirs. But what got this offense jump-started and a lot of third-down conversions was simply Antonio Brown putting Stephon Gilmore in an absolute blender. I mean, yep. totally totally roasting him third and 13 as an X ISO receiver on the outside, huge cushion that Gilmore was giving him yet. Antonio Brown still threatens on that vertical route, breaks it back, forces Gilmore's hips to go left, then right. Then on his break back to the quarterback, Gilmore slips and falls and loses his balance completely. I mean, I think we kind of forget Antonio Brown's impact on this team because we haven't seen it very much. I think this is just his sixth game this season that he has played, but his last four games played for the Bucks, 12 targets per game, eight receptions per contest, 95 yards, and a touchdown. Is this team better with, with Chris Godwin out there? 100%. Can they, though, still win the Super Bowl without potentially the best slot receiver in the NFL in Chris Godwin? Yes, and it's because Antonio Brown is back there right now, and he's someone who can win the outside and can win on the inside and is a nightmare to cover one-on-one -on -one stuff. Yeah, he was the distant number three receiver. Like he wasn't playing in 12 personnel or any of that stuff, but he is still good enough to be a number one receiver. Like I am fully confident in that. If they have like a little bit of Mike Evans fire, a little Antonio Ice situation, I, I really do like what they can do. I mean, he had like a 50% target share in this game, something close to that. I and mean, this was just an absolute dominance. They used um a, a distant receiver as a number two, Cyril Granson or whatever his yeah. name is. And it's because he was a blocking receiver. But then you have Antonio Brown as like the number one easily until Mike Evans comes back. So I think that Antonio Brown might win you your fantasy championship if you're able to to storm through uh, all these injuries. Yeah, like if – and I kind of hate when people do this, but I'm going to do it for the sake of the show. If he removes Cyril Grayson's 62-yard reception, which is kind of a fluke, we would never expect him to make that kind of play ever again. 
The rest of the team, other than Antonio Brown, had 13 targets for 69 total yards. I mean, again, we haven't seen Antonio Brown as a full-time player necessarily this year because they have two awesome 12 personnel wide receivers, and they do run 12 personnel multiple tight end sets a lot. But what AB does on the field is, is simply extraordinary. Yeah, let me read through some of these yardage totals. I'll give you the averages. 121 yards in that opener against the Cowboys. Then he had 63 yards and seven receptions against New England. 124 yards and two scores against the Miami Dolphins on seven catches. 93 yards and a touchdown on nine receptions against the Philadelphia Eagles. And then 101 and 10 against the Panthers. The only down game he's had this season is one catch for 17 yards against the Falcons that they put up 48 freaking points on. Uh, so five unbelievable games. Yep. And one from a solely individual production standpoint, a down week. They're in a great spot with him on the field. And it's so easy that Tom Brady trusts him. It's so clear to see. And Brady was only pressured five times this game against the Panthers. Quickest time to throw of the season for him, 2.06 seconds per PFF. His receivers were winning instantly. And compare that to the Saints, which was a down performance last week, pressured 15 times. Major, major difference. By the way, Antonio Brown's a complete I'm, clown I'm, off the field. Complete clown, by the way, Hayden. Like, take zero responsibility in the post-game press conference for, for anything related to that vaccination status. It makes me question if he's ever taken responsibility for anything in his life. But I just wanted to say that quickly before we move on. Yeah, he hasn't had to because he's such a good football player. It's like that's just the way <laughs> life goes, unfortunately. Um, yeah, why are we writing Tom Brady off for MVP? He's gonna We're lead not. the league in touchdowns. But no, but like as a like everyone's saying it's it's Aaron Rodgers only now, and there's no like Cooper Cups in it and Jonathan Taylor's in it, and like John Tom Brady's gonna lead the league in touchdowns and like where he's all of a sudden eliminated. Like, I don't understand this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A few more to go, Hayden. Where should we go to next? Maybe Panthers future at both quarterback and head coach, because as we sit here at the end of week 16, both questions hover ahead of both positions. So I don't understand why Sam Darnold didn't start here. That's like my big thing. Because Cam Newton started the game. He had an interception. He had like a big play. But then Sam Darnold came in like on drive number three. He had a huge broken play that went for 63 yards to go to the red zone. Then he immediately gets pulled. And then Cam Newton gets stopped twice. And then it's third and long. And then in comes Sam Darnold. And then ultimately, it was just Sam Darnold finishes the rest of the game. And I just questioning what is the process here? Because Sam Darnold's under contract next year. Because they extended that fifth-year option, for no good reason. They did not have to do that. That would seem like an unforced error at the time. He has 18.6 million guaranteed next year. He will be on this roster unless somebody is going to do the Jared Goff thing where they'll take on his contract for picks or something like that. So I don't get why Cam Newton starting this game. Like you want to see what you have with Sam Darnold as much as you can because you've already committed to him this offseason. And I really hated, like I, I had to go back and I looked at what Matt Rule said going back to the NFL draft, because they're in the situation where they could have drafted Fields or Mac Jones if they wanted to. And when they asked him right after the draft why he did that, he said, I think we made a decision that we are going to have Sam be our quarterback. I look at it real simply. How we drafted a quarterback, we have a quarterback where if we took another position player, we would have Sam plus now J.C. Horn. To me, it was two for one. It's an opportunity to continue to build the team while also having a quarterback in Sam that we can believe to do it. So they're just in a situation where they are stuck with Sam Darnold because they committed to him and they did not have to commit to him. But now they want to play Cam Newton because they don't believe in Sam Darnold and it's only been 15 weeks. And now they did, they couldn't believe in their offensive coordinator. And then after the game, just to make matters worse, Rule comes out and says it's going like, to take seven years because Jay-Z, it took him seven years to build his empire. <laughs> like, I mean, what are we doing here? Yeah. So I'm, I really, under, like, I don't understand how long Matt Rule thinks this is going to take. Like, it, is this going to be a six-year plan? Like, that's not how the NFL works, dude. I, I hate to break it to you, but you got one more year. He's apparently going to come back next year. But you have to figure this out in year three, or you're going to be coaching on Auburn like I predicted earlier. So I just don't understand the thought process uh, over, like, the last, like, seven, eight months. And you'd hope in those three years you have your quarterback. Like, it is easier to make the pitch of, hey, we're building something 
when you have brought in a quarterback that can be with the team for five to 10 or whatever years. And that's not, that's not the case here. Like it feels like they will be on the outside looking in once again at the quarterback carousel. Now, did they try to do it last summer? And I'm, I'm, Yes, it failed. It 100% failed. They tried to make the Matthew Stafford deal in terms of including the number eight overall selection. That didn't work out. Matthew Stafford chose Los Angeles. They were very much in on Deshaun Watson, multiple first-round picks, and then the Deshaun Watson situation became untenable and could not make that move. So then the pivot was to was to Sam Darnold. Did they mis-evaluate that? Yes. You and I came on instantly after that trade happened and said that even the highlights of Sam Darnold showed an erratic passer who failed to lead, lead his receivers on target throws and just someone who might be broken because his shoulders, his eyes, his feet are all on different planes. And that's exactly what we've seen this year. Now, and specifically for this week and week 16, I truly think the reason why Cam started is because this is going to be the last time that we see Cam Newton in a, a Panthers uniform. And as weird as that narrative might be for the reason why he started, um, I think that's why. I, I really do. Now That sums it up perfectly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think your point stands with that. Uh, Cam also had a post-game press conference where he was like extremely introspective and was talking about you question if you're even good enough to play and win and all those things. Bottom line, the Panthers set up Cam Newton to fail once oh, bringing yeah. him in this year. Everything was about Cam once they signed him because of the awful moves that the Panthers made to get up to that point and having no pivot spot. And while it was exciting, while I enjoyed watching it, it was it was entertaining. You could immediately see that it wasn't going to work because everything around him. I There's a very, and, and I'll close with this, there's a very... Big question of if Matt Rule knows what a good organization and offense looks like because Ian Rappaport quoted Matt Rule saying that like early on the season, I thought we were an excellent passing team. I'd like to see us to get back to that. I don't think the Panthers were ever a good passing team. Like no. DJ Moore was getting his and they were never successful. It was off script Sam Darnold runs that were not going to be successful for an entire year. And so if you'd like to also get back to that passing game, then Matt Rule, why were you in front of the media every single Monday saying, oh, we just got to run the ball. That's what we got to do is just run the ball. Situations of failure for, for everyone involved here. Yeah, and even just aside from the quarterback situation, this is what they did in the draft since Rule's been there. They only drafted defensive players in 2020, and I get it. The defense is better now, and their defense coming into this was really bad. So I somewhat understand that. But then you go J.C. Horn at the top of the draft this year. Then Terrace Marshall's your second-round pick. This was finally the week where he started playing in three wide receiver sets. He's been a bust so far just because he, he apparently is just not good enough to play or he's not a good scheme fit with Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore, whatever the situation is, he's not playing. And then I looked at this upcoming draft. They have the seventh overall pick currently. They don't have a second round pick. They don't have a third round pick. So their their second best pick is 105th overall currently. How are you going to fill this roster? Where is the offensive lineman coming in? Like, I don't think they're going to attract a Russell Wilson or an Aaron Rodgers or any of those types anymore. So you're going to be sticking with like, if Baker Mayfield or Jimmy G, one of these types of quarterbacks, uh, I think it's going to be that level. Uh, Mitch Trubisky, it's going to be someone like Marcus that. Marcus Mariota, yeah. Yes, it's going to be someone like that. And I don't know how they're going to upgrade this offensive line because they have uh, two only one pick in the top 100. Like that's, I, I think he's I think he's basically toast. Not this year, but I think next year. I don't know what his contract situation. I know he signed a seven year, sixty two million dollar contract, but I think mm-hmm. that he's going to have one more year, and I don't like his odds. I do like what Matt Rule bring brought to the table in terms of this felt like the first time from a player evaluation standpoint, the Panthers had a process like under Marty Herney, they could draft someone in round two was who was a complete freak of an athlete. And then in round three draft someone who was a non NFL caliber athlete that actually right. legitimately happened with them with Matt rule. He is only drafting athletes. He cares about that. And 
that was the same thing in terms of his recruiting and why he gained an edge at Baylor and at Temple versus everyone else who, you know, was attached to stars. It was all about development and stuff. And then, you know, bringing in Scott Fitterer and the mindset of, hey, it's better off if we have multiple chances and multiple darts rather than the Dave Gettleman of, oh, we have seven picks. We're going to make seven selections and that's it. We're not trading our draft picks. So again, from a drafting standpoint, I appreciate that they finally have a process, but from a team building standpoint, this team is worse than it was last year. And you can't have that. You simply can't have that when it's supposed to be an improvement. As we just talked about Brandon Saley, hopefully year two is better than year one. Right. Yeah. They should have just draft the Justin Fields and none of this. Or Mac Fields Jones, was, who I believe they coached yeah. in the senior bowl. Right. If they, if this team was struggling, but they had the rookie quarterback, we wouldn't be having these conversations. Like they opted to not, go the rebuilding route they're caught in between like they want to win now but they don't have the roster to win now and they're picking the wrong positions like defensive tackle in the top 10 like it's just they're just no process i don't know what their timeline like when 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 they got hired when did he think he was gonna win the super bowl year seven year two like i, I can't i can't put my finger on it david tepper talked about process and building and i think that's why they went to a a head coach who had done that at, at college programs. They like built this sports information sector of the organization. They, you know, now have an indoor facility for practice and all this kind of stuff. But all of that goes out the window when you're not improving. And if you're left on the outside, which they tried not to be, but based on their success this year, it almost feels like a certainty. They're going to be left on the outside looking in again at the, uh, at the quarterback position. Uh, which might mean Sam Darnold in 2022 again. Okay, let's stay in the NFC South. Talk about a rookie in Kyle Pitts who actually set the Falcons record for a single season in receiving yards. Did you realize this? With, I think, over, what, 934 this season? That's even Tony Gonzalez didn't do that with the Atlanta Falcons, which is pretty crazy considering how, quote-unquote, quiet we thought Kyle Pitts had been this year. One of his best games in a long time. Six catches on six targets for 102 yards, was used everywhere. 17 inline snaps, eight in the slot, 11 out wide. Yes, only 36 snaps, so that was a 78% rate. I mean, his best play was early third quarter. It's a second eight, a three by one. He was isolated on the right against a cornerback. At the snap, it looked like two deep safeties. Dean Marlowe, which was the kind of safety on that section of the field, simply did not move at all. Kyle Pitts was able to create separation. Some might call it a push-off. Some might say he was using his size and his athleticism to win in one-on-one on on the outside. There were other third and 11 conversions, third and five conversions, so on and so forth. But what Kyle Pitts is doing as of late, over the last three games when he's found his footing, 61 receiving yards, 77 receiving yards, 102 receiving yards. That's 16 yards per reception. So right now, Hayden, he's kind of doing the difficult part. He's a big play tight end. What I would love to see moving forward is kind of the simple stuff, the shorter stuff, and maybe get more volume, more opportunities, and, and more targets. Because just 6.7 targets per game, 4.6 receptions per game for a alpha at the position, I'd love to see incorporated more often, but it's pretty incredible. He's already doing that in terms of big plays. I think he has like 25% of the Falcons uh, receiving yards this year, which is That's unreal numbers. Um, yeah, I'm very curious to see how they're going to use him with Calvin Ridley. Um, in that one play that you're talking about, the second he went and busted to the outside, it was immediately going to be isolated coverage for him one-on-one. The safety was not going to come over. So that's like – the only reason why I say that is because the Falcons are treating him like a wide receiver. Defenses are treating him like a wide receiver, especially in those three-by-one formations. That's something that Travis Kelsey has been doing when he's been setting all those receiving records in Kansas City. And it's just he's he's so physical. He's so fast. His body control has been so good. Um, and he just turned 21, 81 days ago. So he's going to break Mike Dicka's record if he has a couple big games. Now, Mike Dicka did that in 13 games. Let's not forget that season make no sense to mm. me. But Kyle Pitts is doing all of the hardest parts first, winning against man-on-man coverage on the outside. And we talked about this previously. The red zone stuff's just been so inefficient. I think some of that could be play calling. But I think a lot of that is just bad luck. Teams try pivoting against him. I think next year, if this team could block a little bit better, he can have a really big regression when it comes to touchdowns. And all of a sudden, we have a 1,000-yard receiver and also somebody that's going to be scoring seven touchdowns. And that's how you have these Darren Waller-type years that we just recently watched. So I've been super impressed with Kyle Pitts. 
Um, even with the the rookie tight end stuff, he's been still performing like a rookie wide receiver, and that's pretty cool to see. I'm all for big plays. I'm all for explosive plays. And the league is kind of built on creating those and stopping those when when you really think about it and how defenses and offenses have won this season. So I kind of feel wrong again in asking, is it weird for me to wish like he had those shorter receptions, like he had more involvement rather than those like five catches per contest. But really you're looking at it and Travis Kelsey is getting about two more receptions per game, two more targets per game. So just finding that area of the field, while it's a bit more muddied, it's a bit more chaotic, it's a bit more filled with trash, but getting him going in that area, one will improve the Falcons. And maybe it's even impossible to do this year because the Falcons blocking is, is so bad up front for Matt Ryan. And if that can improve, and if Matt Ryan is even on the roster next season, then, uh, then hopefully Kyle Pitts can emerge there. I'm, we're already writing our narrative for how we're going to be completely bought in for 2022. And I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Tight end five on under, underdog right now for next year. And I'm totally fine with that. Uh, okay. A couple more, two more before we get out of here. You want to talk about the Jaguars number one overall pick, which I guess they seemingly locked up after their last second loss to the, uh, the New York jets. So right now the Jaguars and the lions each have two wins, but because the lions also have a tie, it's most likely the Jaguars going to have the number one pick. And then it goes Lions, Texans, Jets, Giants, and then the Jets also get the, the sixth overall pick because they traded it from the Seahawks. Now, how the Jaguars got this first overall pick was something else. On this final drive, it's a game-winning drive potentially, uh, with about a minute left at about the 35-yard line. They don't have any timeouts, and they decide to run the ball, which they were running like they were wasting clock on a first and ten run. Like this wasn't like third and short. This is a first and ten run. They just ran it up the middle. Then the next play, Trevor Lawrence scrambles to the five-yard line, has a throwaway. Then he has a near interception that ends up getting completed. The clock is running. Instead of having a play call for that situation, they opt to spike the ball with 12 seconds left from the one-yard line. And then the worst part of this, and I think this is the most underrated part, is now they have all the time. They don't have timeouts, but they stopped the clock. They shouldn't have done that. They should have thrown a fade or something, but they've stopped the clock. They didn't break the huddle after that play until there was 11 seconds left on the play clock. So I don't know what happened in those 30 seconds. If they were what type of play, if they were switching personnel, but the fact is they were not prepared on the third and goal or the fourth and goal. And then a couple seconds later, after they break the huddle, they're scrambled. Tavon Austin lines up on the wrong side. Trevor Lawrence tells him to go to the other side. By that time, they were supposed to have another motion guy and both players are, are shifting at the same time. Illegal shift game over. It was so it was not just the, the spike. It was the the run on first and 10 it was the fourth and goal not coming out of the huddle this was just a total disaster situation and i looked at stat just because i was just trying to like all right how bad is trevor lawrence situation so what i did on sports info solutions they have a uh, i looked at yards per route run against cover one and cover two man so not against blitz looks just like how often you're beating your receivers and i i only looked at on target throws so this should just be like okay how good is my wide receivers the Jaguars are dead last by a full yard. It's down at 6.2. The next close, like the Jets and the Texans are all the way up into the sevens. So he has, I think, probably the worst coaching staff in the league and probably the worst wide receivers. So I don't know what to do. They're, they are so many pieces away from winning here. And I thought Trevor Lawrence played fine in this game. He just literally has zero help. And it's like hard to evaluate him because he's been so bad like this right. year, but I don't, I don't think it's been him. I think it's been everybody else. Yeah. I, I know that Trevor Lawrence doesn't have a touchdown, I think in seven of his last eight games or, or something like that. But what you just outlined where the personnel is so bad on an individual route running basis in terms of creating separation, we know how bad the coaching staff, not just heading into this game when it's fired coaches like Daryl Bevel and Brian Schottenheimer trying to get this offense. It's fired. It's not like Tim Kelly, who's in Houston, who was kept over when a new head coach came in, right? Or like if we're talking about the same thing with Frank Reich, when he was hired, he kept Matt Eberflus. Like these are good coaches who stay on when new regimes pop in. Kellen Moore and Mike McCarthy, right? Those guys stay in there. It's, it's the coaching for the entire season. Who has had to deal with a college guy with an awful mindset for NFL players tanking the morale of that team and then getting fired after 12 or 13 games. No one else has had to deal with that. 
And while I'm the reason why I'm still like buying into Trevor Lawrence at large and want to buy everyone's stock in him is because when you go and listen to his press conferences, he's not a beaten man. He's not destroyed. He's not head down. Oh, we just got to get through the season and look towards next year. He's uplifting. He's like, he's handling himself so well in such an awful, awful environment. And just zooming into this past weekend, Zach Wilson had the lowest intended air yards per throw. Michael LaFleur is trying to set him up for success where they went, even without Jamison Crowder and Elijah Moore and Corey Davis, keep going on and on. Trevor Lawrence had the third highest intended air yards per throw at 10.6. He still had to attack vertically because they lost James Robinson. They have nothing out there that succeeds. So 10.6 compared to 5.1. The two were playing wildly different games. And it feels like every single one of those times, Trevor is making mistakes in isolation. But then when he still does things correctly, his wide receivers screw up in isolation. Yep. His tight end, his running back, everyone else does. And it feels like I'm saying that each and every week, but I firmly, firmly believe that's true. And I think it's going to be true next year. I'm looking at the over the cap for the Jaguars in 2022. They have Marvin Jones under contract, but they could save $3 million if they cut him. They could do that, especially if uh, completely new coaching staffs there. LaVisca Chenault is going to be on the team, but he's 97th out of 105 qualifying wide receivers in yards per route run versus man coverage. He simply is just a screen guy at this point or just sitting in zone coverage and make a yard after the catch play. Travis Etienne is going to be back. And I think because of what's the, the James, role. Yeah. So, but I think this is important because of the James Robinson, Achilles stare, he's probably going to be on the pup list to start the year. Cause it's going to be hard for him unless he gets the, the cam acres treatment. Uh, I don't think that James Robinson is going to be a bankable piece. So I think that Travis Etienne is probably going to be the actual running back, which is good for like dynasty and all those stuff, but they don't have like a, any wide receivers like LaVisca might maybe is a, a starting slot receiver in this league, but DJ Chark's on under contract. Marvin Jones is a backup player at this point. He's just not, doesn't have enough bursts. So all of their picks better be on offense. Like the anti Carolina Panthers in 2020. I want every single pick to be on offense this year, at least give Trevor Lawrence some help. Um, but yeah, I, I hope it's like Byron Leftwich and a bunch of draft picks on offense. Cause he's, I mean, he's been, he's been, it's like one of the worst situations I can remember. Yeah, we, oh. we got to track that. And and typically when teams are so bad, you get garbage time stats. And it's even like a situation where that's impossible. Um, just being able to isolate Trevor Lawrence is difficult this year. But again, I, I hate seeing tweets out there of asking like, well, what does he do well? Why aren't we blaming him? Look at it. Look at the scenario, man. It's 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 probably the worst I've ever seen. Probably the worst I've ever seen. Um so I'm, I'm excited to track how they hopefully can improve, at least on paper, ahead. Okay, let's get out of here with a couple of people's pick five slips because all of you know that in week 16, it was our first ever odds boost over on Underdog. We boosted you if you included Josh Allen's total yards from 20x to 50x. That means a $10 max gave you $500. And boy, oh boy. Loved seeing many of these. Obviously, Allen went over his 269 or 280 yards, wherever you got it as. And here's some fun ones here. Combine that with a Saquon Barkley under, T. Higgins, Christian Kirk over four and a half receptions, got up to seven, and Kyler Murray went over by about 30 total yards. That's from our guy, Connor Flynn. Thanks so much, Connor. Hey, any thoughts? We talked about T. Anything about the Arizona Cardinals team? Wow. I'm assuming the narrative that Connor painted here was, hey, Colts running game, it's going to own own the Cardinals up front. So it's going to be on Kyler and Christian Kirk over the middle of the field to make up for that in second halves. I'm sure he just looked straight at the fantasy usage model and saw that Christian Kirk was popping <laughs> in the top 15. I think that's that's exactly what happened there. Uh, here is here's another one. This one from uh this one is from John. Josh Allen over, Damian Harris touting that all weekend. Absolutely love it. If you thought the Patriots were going to have any success, then Damian Harris is going to be your guy because Ramondre Stevenson and quickly on Damian Harris. We saw so many people advance because he gave them 23 points and half point PPR this past weekend. He gets the Jacksonville Jaguars in week 17 for your fantasy football championship. If the winner of Best Ball Mania 2 has Damian Harris, one of the show's favorites from this summer, 
I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to enjoy. I'll pop some Prosecco for that person. Justin Jackson, a great call by you. I know you went with his, he hit both. He hit both his, his rushing total and his rushing plus receiving touchdown mark here. And the Cortland Sutton over Hayden. I don't know if the usage model would have put him there, but it worked out. And Miles Sanders getting a touchdown uh, under. So uh, Miles Sanders would have hit his over in total yards, but he obviously has a broken hand and might miss some time. Yeah, the Corlin Sutton stuff, like at some point, like 28 yards for the over under, <laughs> like at some point you're like, okay, he's still Cortland Sutton. I know everything's bad, but at a certain point, some of that stuff matters. Yeah, going back to Justin Jackson real quick. We'll talk about this on the, the usage show on Tuesday. He looked good, man. Like, I think this is a player that could play. And, like, he was definitely the one-for-one one replacement for Austin Eckler. So, Austin Eckler's under contract for next year. I don't think that Justin Jackson is. But I think the Chargers should make uh, re-signing Justin Jackson a priority. And I think for for best ball rankings next year, I'm definitely going to try to be ahead of ADP on Justin Jackson. He was, like, the perfect scheme fit for Justin Herbert. He had the really bad fumble, but Eckler's also – like, that, that is what Austin Eckler also does, too. Um, so yeah, really impressive with Justin Jackson. And it helps when the starting running back tells everyone to go, uh, go play his backup when he's, yep. he's going to be out. Okay. Last one here from, from Carl took the Zacherts over, over there, Nick Chubb over 86 and a half rushing yards. Love Carl going for it with Baker Mayfield with the shoulder injury, getting 11 rushing yards when the pick em line was set at eight and a half rushing yards. And then Michael Pittman. 82 receiving yards when the pick and line was at 61 and a half receiving yards. So love hearing from John and, and Connor and Carl and, and everyone else. It's so cool to see us launch, I'm not going to say a new product, but a new element of pick em, which everyone knows I absolutely love jumping from 20 X to 50 X. This is not going to be the only one we're going to have more in the future. So hopefully all of you had a fun sweat. I did too. Miles Sanders crushed mine. I'll say that Miles Sanders crushed mine because he was definitely going to be there and it just didn't work out. I'm going to be pushing for the full Chubb bonus. That's what I want. Love that. Stretch. Love that. All right, everyone. That was a fun show. I really enjoyed that one. Hopefully you all did too. It's up on the podcast feed. As always, you can search on any podcast platform out there. For all of you here right now, we'll be back actually tomorrow with another usage show. One of the final few of the season. Like and subscribe. Be here around 530 Eastern on Tuesday. We'll be back and do it all again Friday morning with the week 17, oh, what used to be the final week of the NFL season for our game-by-game and matchups preview show. All right, for Hayden, I'm Josh. Up the bell, everyone. Talk to you all soon. See ya.